Welcome back to Christianity 101. We're into lesson number five, a very critical lesson. Of course, I think they're all pretty critical. And that is sin, repentance, forgiveness, and sanctification. This lesson is going to be very critical to your spiritual success and your spiritual advancement. And that is because we're all going to sin. Paul said, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And he was referring to the sin nature. And that lets us know that we're going to eventually stumble. Not that we're planning on it, not that we want to, but we're going to fall. And once we fall, we have to know what to do. And then we have to know how to get better so that we don't fall into the same temptation or the same trap again and again and again. We've got to learn how to get the victory and improve our performance or improve our efficacy how to mastermind our weaknesses or, or master them and get the victory over them. So this whole lesson is about sinning, not that you need help with that, but once you do sin, repenting, forgiveness, and then sanctification. So let's look into our lesson here. Sin is defined as missing the mark. And we covered this, I think, in the previous lesson. Biblically, in the Greek, and the original languages, the Bible languages, sin is to miss the mark which means there's something the Lord always wants us to aim for. And he commands us from the word of God what to aim for and what to aim against or to aim away from. You know, if you ever go hunting or shooting guns, you aim at a target and you've got to make sure that the, there's safety behind the target so that in case you miss the target, you're not sending the bullet another thousand miles, not a thousand miles, but a thousand yards downrange into a neighborhood. There are things you aim at and things you never aim at. A lot of Christians confuse this. They're aiming their lives at things God forbids, and they're totally ignoring things God commands. Either way, when we sin, what we're doing is we're missing the mark, the mark of God's word. God's word is the mark. Therefore, sin is anything violating or anything contrary to God's word. And that's why we have to be avid students of the word so that we know what God's word permits, what God's word forbids, what God's word wants us to aim our life at, what God's word wants us to steer our entire life away from. These are critical things. It's why you need to be in church. It's why you need to have a pastor. It's why you need to be in the Bible on a regular basis, in prayer on a regular basis. If all, you be, or all you're discipled by is, is social media, you're going to be a really squirrely, carnal, sensual Christian. We want to make sure we stick in God's word because as John 17, 17 says, his word is truth. In fact, I want to read that verse because there's a little bit more to it before and after. The Lord said in John 17, 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. We're not supposed to be of this world. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, the fourth step in our, our Sunday school lesson is sanctification. And the Lord said, as he's praying to his father, sanctify my disciples, sanctify my followers through thy truth. So truth is the only way we're sanctified. And he said, thy word is truth. We'll look at sanctification more here in a minute. But I want you to see that God's word is truth. Truth isn't what you make it to be. Truth is what God declares it to be. Right now, in, in this post-enlightenment period, we, we tend to think truth is anything we want it to be. In fact, it's a common philosophy now on the earth that your truth is okay for you, but my truth is a different truth. That is teetotal hogwash. Truth is what God's word declares truth to be. Anything else is opinions. Anything else is falsely, science is falsely so-called. 
Once someone is born again in their spirit, they can no longer commit sin out of their spirit. That's encouraging. Let's read that out of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. One translation says habitually commit sin. One translation says sinning out of their total nature. For his seed remains in him. That is the word of God that lives and abides forever. We've looked at 1 Peter 2. Uh, where are we born again? We're born, or how are we born again? Of the word of God, not of corruptible seed, of incorruptible seed, of the word of God that lives and abides forever. So where are we born again at? In our spirit, man. What are we born again of? Incorruptible seed. Therefore, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That is, he cannot sin out of his born again spirit man. What about flesh? Absolutely. What about our soul? Absolutely. Even as Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds forth murders and envyings and lusts and drunkenness. We want to make sure we distinguish where we're sinning and where we're not sinning. That way we can escape the pitfalls of condemnation, but also not be so ignorant as to think we can ignore sin when it's trying to actively work in our life. The sin nature abides in our flesh. We quoted that. We'll go back and look at it again real quick. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, very familiar passage. Anybody who wants to live clean and holy for Jesus should know Romans chapter 7 pretty well. I'm going to read you this passage. It's a little uh, wordy, but it's fun to read too. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. What Paul is saying is, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, I'm always doing it. That sounds like any Christian who's ever come up and grown up through their, the strengths of their flesh until they could learn to master their flesh and learn to master repentance and forgiveness. If then I do that which I would not, or if I'm doing that which I don't want to do, I consent unto the law that it is good. God's law is good. Just because I'm not abiding by it doesn't mean I think it's evil. Every one of us has struggled to do that which is right, but we'd never say God's word is wicked. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, we have to distinguish we're born again in our spirit, but we have a sin nature in our flesh. And Paul's saying it's no more I, the real me that's doing this, but sin that's doing what it wants to do in my members. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me. I want to do that which is right. I want to do that which is holy. The will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I can't figure out how to do it. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul's talking about the struggle between his real man, his real him, his, his spirit man, and then this flesh thing that we're stuck to until death do us part. This helps us understand in advance that when we sin, it doesn't mean you want to sin. Your flesh might have enjoyed it. Part of your life maybe wanted it. But what is your heart saying after you committed that sin? You're crying out to God, oh Lord, please forgive me. Lord, you know that's not my heart. You know that's not the real me. It's a good place to be. You never want to sin. And like Proverbs says, be like the adulterous woman who commits adultery, then wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. 
Whereas Jeremiah says, some people sin, and Jeremiah, I think chapter three or four says, and they have the, the forehead of a whore, <laughs> that they don't even blush when they sin. We don't want to be that way either. The sin nature abides in the flesh and will be there until our body dies. Corruption must put on incorruption. And so I'm sorry to, to break it to you. You're going to deal with flesh and deal with sin until you die. So we, we're going to have to get good at this. Not good at sinning, but get good at repenting, get good at forgiveness, and get good at sanctification because this is a process we're going to run through over and over and over again until we lay down this death suit called our body. We will continue to sin until after we have made Jesus, excuse me, we will continue to sin after we've made Jesus our Savior and Lord because there is a sin nature in our flesh and there is a tempter in the earth. Understand that there is no salvation for your flesh. There is only death. Your spirit man is born again in the new birth. Your soul is a work in progress. It's constantly getting better. Your flesh is a monster that has to be restrained. And the more your soul is renewed and disciplined and trained, the better you're going to be able to put up barriers to limit your flesh. The more you're going to be able to walk in self-discipline to limit your flesh. But please do not, don't think you're going to obtain this thing that it's a false doctrine that used to be propagated years ago. This thing called sinless perfection. There's no such thing as sinless perfection in your flesh. You and I are going to be dealing with temptations until the day we die because it is a spiritual curse upon the earth and in our flesh body. On top of that, as we say here in the curriculum, there's a tempter in the earth called the enemy. And even if you can discipline your body very regimented, very strict, there will be times in your life when, as the Bible teaches us, Satan will depart you for a season, then come back around seeking whom he may devour. And you, you might be able to kind of think right now as you're listening to me that there's been seasons where sin was easily beat in your life. And you could go through seasons, maybe weeks or months, where your familiar sin was a breeze behind you and you didn't even pay attention to it. And then there seems as if there's seasons when everything you ever thought you got the victory over flares up and it's like you're running through mud and have never been able to beat it. My personal opinion, my personal experience and doctrine teaches and encourages me that in those seasons, it's as though the enemy has come back around and, and personally attacked you. And so it wasn't just your flesh flaring up, but it was a demonic anointing, a demonic cloud resting upon you. Something you had disciplined in your flesh and put under was now super strengthened by the presence of a familiar spirit or the presence of a great temptation. If you can do the word through that season. And you may stumble or fall in that season, but come through it. The Bible promises you resist the devil, he'll flee. You'll get back into a new season of victory. Maybe as I talk, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're saying, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I've walked that cycle so many times. It's, it's basically part of my dogma. There's seasons when the enemy buffets me and it's like I don't have any victory over things I once mastered, but I recognize this is the devil doing his thing in this season of my life and I've got to hunker down, pray more than usual, resist more than usual, declare the word more than usual. Maybe I trip up and fall more than usual, but once I come through it, man, I can have weeks, months, maybe even a year or two of that temptation, that sin being nothing but a past memory. Be encouraged. As my pastor says, the Lord knows whether you're chasing sin or sin's chasing you. If you're chasing sin, you're not right with God. 
But if sin's chasing you, you're probably chasing after God and you are right with God. We must remember God does not tempt us, but it is our own lust tempting us. James chapter one, verses 13 and 14 say, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now we gotta stop for a moment, pause, and understand there's a difference between temptation and testing. God will most certainly test you. He will most certainly allow you to walk through a tribulation, but he will never set sin in front of you to tempt you. He will test you like he did Abraham. He will test you like he did Joseph. He will put us through the trial of the furnace of affliction, but he will not tempt you with sin. The Bible is very clear. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now notice, you and I suffer temptation when we are drawn away. Away from what? Away from the Lord, away from scripture, away from holiness, away from the fellowship of the saints. How are we uh, drawn away? Of our own lust. And understand, lust isn't all sexual. If you think lust is sexual, it's probably because that's one of your strongest lusts. But lust can be money, lust can be career, lust can be fame, lust can be entertainment. Lust is any desire unchecked and unfettered. And so that you're desiring something beyond ordinary desire or you're desiring something that in the moment or in the season is off limits to you. Sex is not evil. Sex outside of marriage is evil. Sexual drive is good, it's from God, but sexual drive demonstrated apart from holy matrimony in the marriage bed is lustful and sin. So we need to make sure we understand this. Just just because maybe you don't have a sex drive doesn't mean you don't have lust. But the temptation is in our flesh and you and I will always run through circles, cycles, ebbs and flows where our flesh doesn't seem to register and then there's times when all we can think about is flesh. This is where we have to be able to be quick to repent, quick to receive forgiveness and then to rework our sanctification. Every Christian sins, even the best ones. I'm reminded of a story of Dr. Barclay, that's my pastor, One of his many fathers in the faith was a man named Dr. Roy Hicks. Dr. Roy Hicks is now in heaven. But Pastor Barclay tells a famous story about him. Dr. Barclay, probably in his late 40s or early 50s, maybe even older than that, sitting with Dr. Hicks in a mall. Dr. Hicks was in his 80s and they're eating yogurt. And um, they're in the mall and so there's young people everywhere. And um, Dr. Hicks leans over to Dr. Barclay and says, Hey, uh, hey, Mark, Dr. Barclay's first name, Mark, you see those two pretty girls right there? And so Dr. Barclay looks over and says, well, yeah. And to be honest, I don't appreciate you pointing them out to me. And apparently these were young college girls, probably dressed a little too skimpily. And uh, Dr. Roy Hicks in his 80s, a tremendous Pentecostal pioneer for 50, 60 years. He said, I want you to know that those two girls look just as good to me today as they did when I was their age. He said, and my flesh right now tells me to get up and chase them. He said, the problem is even if I could catch them, I wouldn't know what to do with them. And if I did catch them and knew what to do with them, my wife would kill all of us. And he said, Mark, I want you to know I've been born again for decades, but my flesh refuses to accept that. And so the point of the story is even this great holy man of God He's not a peeping Tom pervert. He was making an object point of it. 
that even in his 80s, having been sanctified and walked through a process of sanctification for all these decades, his flesh was irredeemable. And that even in his 80s, he's still having to put his flesh into check. These girls were young enough to be his great granddaughters. So he's not lusting over them, but his flesh still finds their figure and their form attractive. And so in the process of it, he's rebuking his flesh like he's had to do for 60 years. And he was teaching, making an object point out of it to Dr. Barclay, which we're using on this recording for your benefit. Do not allow condemnation to swallow you alive. Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those that walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. If you walk after the flesh, there will be condemnation for you. Don't allow condemnation to swallow you alive. And the reason we're teaching this is so that you can beat condemnation after you fall into sin. We're all gonna fall into sin. We should be getting better and our, our track record improving and so that what we fall into gets shallower and shallower, not so deep in sin. And the, the falls are becoming further and further apart. Don't allow condemnation to consume you because that's going to ruin your walk with Christ. And that's what the enemy wants. The enemy is a master at what I call the bait and switch. He'll bait you into sin. You'll fall into it. It was his ploy. It's his, what he wanted. And once you're into it, then he'll turn around and point at you and laugh at you and mock you and say, you're no Christian. Look at you. Look at how you fell into that. Look at you. You're no Christian. In which case you say, this was your doing, stupid. I, I have a, a dear family member who got into some very, very gross sin. And, and as she fell into it, we were praying for her. And I began to hear what she was saying in this gross sin. And I knew it was the demon talking to her. And the demon was mo motivating her to go this direction and this direction and this direction. And then when she did, then the devil totally turned 180 degrees on her and beat her up for doing the very thing the devil drove her to do involving this sexual sin. Learn to master Sin and forgiveness, so condemnation does not consume you. Instead of condemnation, confess your sins, get them out in the open before God, and go on with God. Jesus does not condemn you. He advocates for you. Look at 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 1. If we confess our sins, and that's the key, the second you sin, and you are going to sin, I don't mean to speak that to you as some kind of bad juju, bad confession over you, you're going to sin. How do I know this? The Bible says so. And you have a sin nature. The second you sin, you've got to confess it. That doesn't mean you confess it from the rooftops. It doesn't mean you confess it on social media. You confess it to God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here's chapter two, verse one. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. He's trying to encourage us to get out of it. And if any man sin, if, are you kidding, John? We're all doing it. We're all struggling at times. If any man sin, we have, notice it says an advocate, not a prosecutor, not a condemner. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, advocate means defense lawyer. He advocates on our behalf. He says, your honor, talking to the Father, they're guilty, but... I want you to know what we're doing to rectify this thing. He advocates on our behalf. So what I want to do now as we kind of transition on this lesson is show you the difference between repentance and forgiveness. Because lots of times we say we repent, but really all we're doing is receiving forgiveness. Both are necessary, but probably a bulk of what we're doing when we confess our sins is we're saying, I'm sorry, and we're receiving forgiveness. We've not truly repented yet. 
But step one, when you fall into sin, is to confess it. Get it out in the open. Don't harbor it. Don't hide it. Don't try to paint over it. Don't try to church it up, make it pretty. Definitely don't justify it. Confess it and get it out in the open so the Lord can wash you and cleanse you and begin to restore you. There is a difference between forgiveness and repentance. Many Christians call, quote, receiving forgiveness, repentance. There's a, there's a confusion there, and we're going to split hairs on it for the point of sound doctrine. Lots of times when folks sin, if we ask them, have you repented? They'll say, yes, I have repented. But technically, they haven't. They've only said, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. True repentance means you've turned 180 degrees and you're going away from it, never to return again. Forgiveness and repentance are not the same. There's actually a huge difference, but we need both. So let's split the difference here, split the hairs. Forgiveness is what you receive, and this is critical. Forgiveness is what you receive when you confess your sins to God and ask for forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. By confessing sin, he forgives. By confessing sin, he forgives. 1 John 1, 9 says nothing about repenting. It says confession and forgive. Confess, forgive. Confess, forgive. We confess, he forgives. It takes faith to receive forgiveness. Now, it might be worth noting that a lot of Christians are really struggling with receiving forgiveness. I, I don't honestly care what your past is. As a pastor, I have dealt with every sin imaginable. Actually, I take that back. I can think of, I can think of maybe two or three that I've never dealt with. I, I've never dealt with someone who murdered a human, a grown human, I should say. I've dealt with, with ladies who've had abortions. Now, that doesn't move me. I've never dealt with someone struggling with the guilt of murder, though we've had a murderer or two visit our church who was out of prison. I've never dealt, I've dealt with Satanists. I've never dealt with a transgender person. I've dealt with homosexuality. I've dealt with all manner of sexual perversion. I've dealt with just about everything imaginable. And so I say that to say your sin doesn't move me. And your sin certainly doesn't move God. But it may move you tremendously. Your past may move you tremendously. You're going to have to learn to believe the forgiveness God offers to you. And until you can believe and receive forgiveness, you're going to kind of hover in life where you're at today. And that's not where the Lord wants you to stay. He wants you to both know and believe the love that he has for you. That includes forgiveness of sin when you are faithful or obedient to confess. He says, if you will confess, he will forgive. Forgiveness takes just as much faith, maybe even more faith to believe and receive as any other promise from God. And sometimes it's difficult because our sin has become so monstrous in our mind and such a mountain that we wonder, how could anybody ever forgive us? How could anybody ever forget this? Well, just because you can't forget it today doesn't mean God hasn't forgotten it. So learn to, learn to believe and receive forgiveness. That if you confess, God says, I forget. If you confess, I forget. If you confess, he forgives. And he said, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed us from our transgressions. But that's different from repentance, okay? 
Repentance is what you do. Remember, forgiveness is what you receive. And please seek God, study the scriptures to get the victory so you can easily receive forgiveness. Some folks, it's easy for them to forgive, but they'll say, I just can't forgive myself. You have to learn to forgive yourself. I think every one of us still deals with cringe moments. That's when you think about something dumb you did in your past and you go, Ugh, you cringe. I still have several things I think about. I've set my mind on it or every once in a while it'll come up and all of a sudden I go, oh, I can't believe I did that. That's not the same as having trouble receiving forgiveness. That's just thinking back about how foolish you maybe once were and then you realize God is so merciful. He's not bringing that up. Maybe he's your mind or the enemy. Forgiveness is what you receive. Repentance, on the other hand, it's a little more advanced. It's what you do. Repentance means to change directions and never return. Let's read Matthew 3, 8 there. Let's see what this scripture has to say. I wrote these lessons so many years ago and I haven't taught them in a long time. Matthew 3, 8 says, Bring forth therefore fruits answerable to the amendment of life. That's what the Greek says. I like that. Answerable to the amendment of life. Or King James says, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance or bring forth fruits that prove you have repented. That means repentance shows a change of lifestyle. Forgiveness is the balm of Gilead that soothes your soul, though maybe you're still living in a dangerous situation. But repentance proves a change of lifestyle. Repentance has a fruit that proves you've changed your heart. You can receive forgiveness today and still live in sin tomorrow. But if you have truly repented, you're not living in the same place tomorrow. You're, you're, you're five miles down the road away from sin. Think about the prodigal. He, he received forgiveness in the pig pen. And the second he repented, he stood up out of the pig pen and began to walk. And every day of repentance was another day removed from the pig pen. Every day of repentance was another day of bearing more fruit that proves he had amended his old way of living. He could live in that pig pen and say, Lord, forgive me. And live in that pig pen and say, Lord, forgive me. And live in that pig pen and say, Lord, forgive me. And he would receive forgiveness, but he's still living in sin. Until he truly repents, his lifestyle will not change and he'll not have a better life. Repentance means to change directions and never return. If you have truly repented, there should be the fruit of change in your life. You can sin the same sin over and over again and continually receive forgiveness. And as, as my experience as both a Christian and a pastor, a lot of folks live in that cycle till death do them part. That, I think that might be a, a decent heart. At least you're sorry. At least you're saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? But at some point, you're gonna have to press in a little harder and get the victory over that sin so that you're not living in this cycle of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. That you get the victory and you sin, repent, and now it's six months before you sin again and have to repent or receive forgiveness. And before long, it's been three years since you had to ask for forgiveness over that thing because you've truly amended your ways. Sometimes the, the repentance doesn't take place overnight. It's a process and that's what we call sanctification. That's of course what we're marching towards here. If you are continuing to commit the same sin, you have not repented of the sin, you have only sought forgiveness for it. But let us seek forgiveness as we are seeking repentance. Repentance, again, is a heart change and a lifestyle change. 
I would pray that every one of us is, is sorry or convicted or brokenhearted over our sin. But I totally understand just because we're brokenhearted over it doesn't mean we figured out how to break away from the gravitational pull of that sin. I, I keep being reminded here, maybe it's my mind, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, of, of a prostitute that though she may sleep with five men a night, that's sin. That's pretty, pretty gross, heinous sin. Though she, she sleep with four or five men a night for, for a paycheck, prostitution, she can be brokenhearted every time she do it. And her heart say, Lord, forgive me. Oh God, I don't know who you are. Please forgive me. She's receiving forgiveness. She actually has a very genuine heart, but she's not repentant of that lifestyle yet. Proverbs even says that a, a prostitute is not as bad as an adulteress because a prostitute does it to feed her family, but an adulteress does it because she's a wicked woman who, who doesn't need her needs supplied. She does it because she's a wicked woman who wants to tear down homes. The prostitute can lay on her back in sin and her heart cry out, Lord, forgive me, I don't want to do this. Lord, forgive me, I don't want to do this. But she's yet to find repentance. She's just sorry and brokenhearted and constantly receives forgiveness. She's going to need help getting out of that cycle to break the cycle of prostitution and get on to a better living. Now, you and I, we may not be prostitutes, but we can live in the same cycle of sin until we figure out a way to break this this lie that we have to keep living this sinful pattern. So our next section, turn your page if you would. How do I repent? Well, let's look at a few verses here. How do I repent? Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Let me read it to you. Actually, let's look, read verse 15. I'm gonna eliminate the negative conjunctions or, or the knots, the knots and the nays to make this verse read in the affirmative. We're not changing scripture. We're just making it easier to read. For we have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities or weaknesses. He was in all points tempted like as we yet without sin. Now, the, now to read it normal, it says, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. To eliminate the negatives makes it easier to read. We do have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he was tempted like us and yet remained sin-free and sinless. Because he's been touched by the feeling of our weaknesses and he was tempted at all points like as we. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are commanded, as soon as we sin, we're commanded to come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus Christ is merciful. He understands temptation. He understands the pressure, the, the overwhelming drive within the sin nature to compel us to rebel. So step number one, how do I repent? Go boldly to God as soon as you sin so you may obtain mercy. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. And when you're in sin, what you don't deserve is forgiveness. But this tells us that the throne of grace, it's there ready to dispense mercy to you though you don't deserve it. The trap a lot of Christians fall into is they sin and therefore they feel like they have to stay outside of the presence of God to wash themselves before they come back into the presence of God. That's a trap. This verse says, you need to come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find help. When do you need help? You need help as soon as you're in sin. 
Your sinning is a time of need. Mature Christians have learned the second they're tempted, the second they're in sin, they run immediately to the throne of grace. I have learned that even in the midst of me falling into sin, me falling into temptation, me falling into a shortcoming, I'm saying, Lord, have mercy. Here we go, Lord. Before I even hit splat, cry out to God. Because the mature Christian is not the one that never sins. The mature Christian is the one that sins, resists condemnation, repents, gets back up, and doesn't hardly miss a beat. That's mature Christianity. Number two, number one, we're going boldly to the throne of grace. Number two, we're confessing our sin. So what does that look like? Number one, I go into the throne of grace. I say, Lord, have mercy on me. That's how you come to the throne of grace. You come there by calling on his name. You have to come into his presence. When Christians, when immature Christians or, or, or Christians that are still developing, when they sin, they, they, they flee the presence of God. And he doesn't want you to do that. He commands you to come. You're a mess, come. You just sin, hey, guess what? Come. You're thinking about sinning, guess what? Come. Don't, don't flee church. Don't flee prayer. That's when he's most available to help you. Grace abounds when sin is abounding. So it's, it's funny, that verse promises us that. That's there in Romans 8 and, and, and 5, 6, 7, and 8. That verse promises us that, and it's like we run the opposite direction. Number two, confess your sins so you can receive forgiveness and be cleansed from your unrighteousness. So the second step to repentance is to confess it. You know you've done it. Might as well speak it. Get it out in the open. Expose it to the light. Number three, Bring into captivity the thoughts helping you down the path of sin. So once you've confessed, once you've received restoration and forgiveness, you got to start bringing into captivity the thoughts that fed the sinful action. 2 Corinthians 10.5 is a powerful, powerful verse that will go a long way towards helping you live a sanctified, clean life. Thoughts of gluttony, thoughts of lust, thoughts of anger, anything that sets you off and kind of pushes you down the wrong path, you need to bring into captivity those thoughts. It's beyond the scope of this lesson to teach on that, but you've got to learn to speak to your mind, speak to your imagination, speak to your thoughts, your daydreams, and regulate your thought life so that it doesn't control you. Uh, Romans, end of Romans 13 says, make no provision uh, for the flesh. Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh that you should fulfill the lust thereof. Put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision. Provision is another way of saying thinking about something in advance. Number four, well, look at that. That's the next verse, Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make any provision for the flesh. This includes friends. Friends, bad friends are, are bad provision. Bad hobbies are a bad provision. As you grow in Christ, the Lord will remove friends from you. He'll remove hobbies from you. He'll remove, he'll, he'll start cutting off certain things you can and can't watch anymore. And music, appetites, anything that opens you up to sin, you're gonna have to begin to put a limit on and even eliminate. All of these things can be provisions for the flesh. And a lot of these things will feed your thought life. Honestly, all of these things will feed thought life. Friends will introduce you to things that you shouldn't think about. Hobbies will introduce you to things that you shouldn't think about. Entertainment can expose you to things you shouldn't think about. We're talking about how do I repent, not just how do I get forgiveness. That simply is, comes through confession. We're talking about repentance, which is a total change of life. And finally, number five, uh, Hebrews 4.16, when temptation comes, start over at point one. 
Go boldly to the throne of grace. Go boldly to God in this time of need so you can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We might also add that uh, Corinthians says, there's no temptation but such as is common to man. But when it comes, it says the Lord will not allow you to be tempted beyond measure. But when the temptation comes, he will, he will provide a way of escape. So part of repentance that is changing a lifestyle is knowing what escape paths you need, what off ramps you should be looking for. This is repentance, changing direction and maintaining that direction change. Repeat this process for several months or until this area of sin no longer registers in your life. So go to God, confess your sin, bring into captivity every thought, and then eliminate sources that feed the vain imaginations that produce the temptation. It's a process. It isn't just a one and done, it's a process. Just like getting in shape is, process, is a process. Having a savings account is a process. Getting a college degree is a process. None of these things happen overnight. They're a process that you have to live out. And honestly, this process is what we call sanctification. That brings us to our final step. Sanctification is the process whereby you, with God's help, by his grace, make yourself holy. This is the process of purification. So loosely, sanctification and purification are the same thing. Purified means, the root is, of course, you're pure. But you're pure so that you can be sanctified. Sanctification means pure, but set apart for God's use. That's what we're aiming to be as Christians. We're, able, we're aiming to purify ourselves so we can be set apart for God's sacred use. When something is sanctified, it has been washed and set aside for divine use. It means... To set something aside as dedicated unto God. This is a divine process and it takes work. I'm reminded of, uh, I'm, I'm studying church history right now. And I've just come through a section in my studies on John Wesley. And John Wesley was so hungry for God, he, re he read after a lot of great holy men of God of his day. We're talking 18th century, 1730s, 1740s, 1750s. And John Wesley said in his diary or in his writings, he said, after reading about these holy men of God, I became convinced that it was impossible for me to live as half a Christian. This, and okay, that's in a quote. Half a Christian would describe how most of the body of Christ chooses to live. They want to live as half a Christian because to live as an entire Christian requires sanctification. It requires constant purification. It requires constantly living holy and set apart under God. And honestly, most Christians aren't interested in that. Not today. Not when you have all these conveniences, all this technology, all this entertainment, all these distractions. Why would you want to live holy when you can live carnal? That's a foolish question, but a lot of Christians run that question through their system and come out carnal over and over again. This is a divine process and it takes work. Coming back to John Wesley, once he determined it was impossible for him to live as half a Christian, the historian said he cataloged all of his weaknesses and then began to develop a system whereby he would attack his weaknesses so he could become a stronger Christian. Your job as a Christian, part of this sanctification process is to catalog your weaknesses. You know what they are. Maybe the ones today. There may be more that you haven't seen yet, but you ought to at least catalog the two or three or four that you have today and begin to work on them so that you can be used of God in a mightier way. 
This process of sanctification will change your hobbies. It'll change your friends. It'll change your entertainment. It'll change your attire. It'll change how you dress. It'll change your language. You won't tell dirty jokes anymore. You won't laugh at crude things. It'll definitely change your thought life. It'll even change your finances. You're not going to waste money on alcohol. You're not going to waste money on tattoos. You're not going to waste money on, on vanity and, 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 and sin. You're not going to want to waste money on cigarettes. If you're a Christian and you smoke, no condemnation, but you need to quit because every pack of cigarettes is money you're robbing from a missionary. You, you're, you're literally burning money. You're rolling it up, stuffing it with a tobacco, or if you're vaping, you're burning through batteries and vapor and you're putting pneumonia in your lungs. And that's money you could send to a missionary to preach the gospel to someone who's never heard. Sanctification will clean up even your money. First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4 says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. You, you should underline that perhaps in your Bible. The will of God is your sanctification and my sanctification. And what that means is we're getting the victory over familiar sins. We're getting the victory over weaknesses and we're becoming stronger and cleaner and holier season after season after season. We're not struggling with the same sins today as we did five years ago. We're not struggling with the same temptations today like we did 10 years ago. We're getting stronger. We're getting the victory. Even sports athletes get this. If they start throwing a couple interceptions in a game, they will come back after the game. They'll watch the game in repeat over and over again to watch how they kept throwing the interception. And then they will go out there and throw the same pass pattern over and over and over again until they beat that thing. I don't understand why athletes want to excel, but Christians want to live as half Christians. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Again, sanctification re relates to how we possess this body. We control it. It does not control us. We control its appetites. The appetites don't control us. This is the will of God. And we learn through process. We learn through trial and error. We learn through this process of sanctification how to possess this vessel so that nothing else possesses it. This is a process. I can't emphasize that enough to you. It's a process. Don't be discouraged when you're not good at it today. But if you'll keep at it, you'll get better. You're not going to be good at anything new overnight. It takes practice. This thing takes work, time, effort, repentance, Bible study, church attendance. We might add discipleship and making your flesh serve you as a slave. We've said previously, we'll say it again. Your spirit man is king. Your soul is a servant and your flesh should be slave. Don't reverse that. Don't live according to the whims of your flesh. Live according to your spirit man. Live according to the word of God. You will have to become disciplined and deny your flesh the sinful things it craves. Learn to put your flesh under. Final verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I keep under my body and I bring it into subjection. This is Paul. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or a vagabond or a reprobate. Even the apostle Paul said, I've got to keep my flesh under. That's sanctification. I've got to know how to possess this body. That's sanctification. I've got to know how to own it so that it doesn't own me. You have that ninth fruit of the Spirit called self-control. Begin to practice it. Begin to pray it over your body. Final thought here because I'm running out of time. A couple years ago, now I'm, I'm, I'm 6'1". I'm a tall guy and I, I'm athletic. 
But a couple of years ago, actually 12 years ago, I, had, I was sick, so they put, I had viral meningitis, so they put me on steroids. That caused me to put on 20 pounds in a week. Woo, I had never been like that. It took me 10 years to get that weight off. And one of the things I was doing, I never, I, the steroids is an is a appetite, not suppressor. It's an appetite encourager. <laughs> I never learned to harness the, my food appetites after that. I can't explain that. And so finally, about three years ago, I got up to 208. I had never been beyond 180, 185. But slowly because of, of, um, of some of these things, I was up to 208. And I w- it wasn't for lack of working out. I, at the, in the season that I lost all this weight, I was swimming several days a week. I was running probably 20 miles a week. I was lifting weights. It was not an athletic issue. It was a food issue. Because plus I'm, I'm pastoring so I'm sitting down studying the Bible. I'm, I'm basically in a sedentary uh, workplace, even though I'm working out four and five days a week, I'm still eating and sitting. One of the things I began to do is pray and claim the fruit of self-control. And I'd say, Father, I thank you that I walk and I operate in, in the fruit of self-control. I claim self-control. I, I eat to live, I don't live to eat. And I began to discipline my flesh in this arena and sanctify my vessel. And I ended up losing about 25 pounds in a few months. Now, if you were to look at pictures, you might be able to tell the difference. Again, I'm 6'1", and I carried it well. But even to this day, I'm still down to about 185, 189. I fluctuate there in the 180s. I was at 208, and exercise was not fixing it. Uh, one man said, you can't outrun your diet. I throw that out there just to encourage folks who maybe want to lose weight or put their flesh under in the, in the area of food. Claim, pray, and declare the fruit of self-control, and you'll keep your flesh under in that arena. Father, we thank you for this fifth lesson. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to study this. We thank you for the truths of sin, repentance, forgiveness, and sanctification. Bless these listeners in Jesus' name. Amen.